1: We may also be sweary from time to time. We are optimistic, light-hearted girls, but we know this is a really stressful time for some of our listeners. We respect that. In this week's show,
0: we are talking about relationships. Anyone who's been trying to conceive for a while will know that this journey can really take a toll We're going to take a bit of a psychological angle today, and we're going to drill down into how something called your attachment type can really affect how you navigate this journey with your significant other.
1: I was really fascinated, Maria, when you came up with this topic, because I understood that we have to, at some stage, talk about the effect of fertility on relationships. There isn't a client that I suppose you haven't dealt with that hasn't had that chat with you. What I'm fascinated about is this idea of attachment and how our attachment style, and we will obviously go into what attachment is and why do we have a style, but why you chose that as a topic specifically in relation to relationships, if that makes sense.
0: It does make sense. The reason I'm so interested in this is because, like you said, so many of my clients speak to me about how the fertility journey is having an effect on their relationships. But what I've noticed is that different people deal with fertility in different ways. Some women deal with it in one way, some women deal with it in another way. And this is what led me to kind of put two and two together and look into attachment theory in particular and how that affects relationships. So it's it's come very kind of organically. And as you know, my psychology brain <laughs> and my fertility brain, they love to come together. So here we are. We've met in the middle.
1: And it has to be said that you do have a master's degree in psychology. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, it's not as random as it might seem <laughs> to some people. <laughs> so you do see these connections. They're quite glaringly obvious for you where I would simply... <laughs> walk straight past it. I suppose we better start with the basics. What is attachment? Attachment theory
0: was an idea developed in the 50s, and it's basically to do with the bond that you have with your significant others. It's how you feel towards your significant others, even when they're not with you. So it's that thing of, it could be um, your partner. It might even be your, you know, your BFF, you might feel that you're still very emotionally close to them, even if you haven't seen them for two years. It's the connectedness between human beings and that special
1: bond that you feel with your significant others. I assume that the way we bond and connect and attach with our parents, is that like a, a learned behavior?
0: That's the one. So as with much of psychology, according to the theory, this goes back to your childhood. And basically the type of attachment type that you have, and we will go through attachment types in just a minute, but the type of attachment type you have is thought to stem from your very first relationship with your main caregiver. So it might be your mum, but not everybody's raised with their mum. But that first crucial relationship with your caregiver sets you up Essentially, for the rest of your life, and this is why I love psychology because it cannot be underestimated how important that first relationship is. Massive. So, according to the theory, it's like it gets in you; it becomes part of you. So, if, for example, you have a really loving caregiver, they're attentive to you, they play with you, they you know they chat to you, even when you're a baby, they're warm towards you. That's going to set you up in a really nice, positive way, and we'll get into that in a minute. If you have perhaps an absent caregiver, and that can be emotionally absent, it doesn't have to be physically absent, they might be in the room with you, but not paying any attention to you, then that can be quite damaging. And again, we'll look at that in in just a minute. So it's that very first attachment relationship you have from, from day dot. And what's interesting is some research even looks at kind of in utero, but, you know, we'll come back to that another day. It's really, really important. Can you change your attachment style? Excellent, excellent question. There is hope, so yes. It's quite a complicated answer. When this was first put forward, the idea was no. So a man called John Bowlby, who worked with children, he came up with this idea. And originally, it was actually really quite depressing for some people because originally he thought, no, that's it. Literally, those first kind of six months to two years of your life determine everything. But more recent research has said, actually, there is hope. Your attachment type can change, for example, through therapy or through really positive relationships. So yes, there is hope for people as you go through. It might take work, though. And, uh, and the, the thing that you have to be aware of, and I'm really hoping this, this show will help today, is obviously you have to be aware of your attachment type in the first place. And then you can go on to try and deal with it.
1: Sometimes I think about psychology and things are presented in a way that you may not know this, but this is who you are and this is part of you. And that it's kind of like you walk around with the smell of smoke on your clothes, but you didn't realize that you're a smoker. You just happen to be maybe a parent was a, a smoker and you've just got this kind of blowback, the smell on you. As a result of you know their parenting towards you, and you're going through life, and you really don't know it's on you at all, and then you have kids, and then you know your kids get the smell of the smoke, and it just keeps on going. Going then, I think it's called intergenerational trauma, but everyone's passing it on. It's a stench, but really, the, the smoker is years back, could be generationally, and unless someone tells you you stink with smoke, you genuinely don't know. And what's really
0: interesting is it's quite often not until you start parenting that all of these behaviors come out,
1: mm-hmm. you know, and
0: then you kind of go, Oh my God, I sound like my mother. And then, and that's when it comes out because you're put in that direct situation and you're like, Oh my God, there she is. She's here. She's in the room. Preach preach. And I say mother because a lot of the time it is mother, but I, I appreciate it isn't always. Um And what you were talking about, Roshan, is this idea of determinism, this idea that it's in you and there's nothing you can do about it. That's quite a pessimistic way of looking at things, but a lot of psychology is presented in that way. That's maybe a show for another day. You can spiral on this one. I did spiral at university. I went way down the rabbit hole of this, especially when you start looking at hormones. We'll come back to determinism. This attachment bond It's really strong. Like we can't underestimate how strong this is within you
1: and how it affects your relationships. We all have really unique relationships with our parents. Most of us have a male and female. I I know families can take all different shapes and sizes. We'll just talk to the majority just for a second. And the blend of those two people having a child, like is so, to me, it's like it's absolutely so random. How can we formulate any kind of attachment style theory? There's kind of three
0: key attachment types, maybe four, which I'll talk you through now. But because that attachment type is set in stone, according to Bowlby, from when you're a child, it's not coming from your adult relationships. It's coming from that first relationship. The fact that you can meet a partner who you get on well enough with to have a child and who you click and fit together well enough with To be quite honest with you, it's a miracle because there are so many variables that go into who you are and how you function in relationships. It really is quite miraculous that you can find someone that fits with you. Because if you look at the psychology, in some ways, the odds are against you because so many things have happened to you by the time you become an adult, and that affects everything that you
1: are. Are you attracted to a partner because you have similar attachment styles?
0: Possibly, possibly. One of my friends was in therapy, strong supporters of therapy on this show. I remember her telling me that they, they were talking about falling in love and the process of falling in love and attachment theory came up. And what her therapist said was, sometimes when you fall in love with someone, it's because that person is plugging a gap. It depends. It's not a kind of one size fits all answer, but it might be that your attachment style and your partner's attachment style go together. They fit together like a jigsaw piece. I suppose it's probably helpful if I talk through the main attachment styles now, and then that maybe this will make a little bit more sense as we go through. Sure. So you said that there's three, potentially four different types of attachment. Yeah, exactly. So a fourth one was added on later. So I'll just, I'll kind of talk through them. The first three attachment types that were developed, if you like, were secure. That's the optimal one. So if you were going to pick an attachment type, you want to be secure. And over 60% of the population, according to um, the data, are securely attached. You've then got two types of insecure attachment. So you've got insecure avoidant and insecure resistant. Ideally, If you could choose, you would avoid being one of those two, but inevitably life happens. And I don't want anyone to be stressed by this. Life happens and it might affect your attachment type. Like I said before, the good news is there's a lot of research that suggests you can work on your attachment type if you are classified as insecure. So I don't want anyone to stress about this. The key thing is figuring out what you are in the first place. (laughs) That's the most important thing. I'll start with secure. If you have a secure attachment type... This means that if you were to be asked a question about emotional intimacy, you would feel happy being completely honest with your partner and you are comfortable with close emotional intimacy, sharing your thoughts, sharing your feeling, being vulnerable. You might find it hard, but you're comfortable with that. You have this secure attachment type and that's because ultimately, as a child, you learned That the person that loves you will be there to look after you and is a secure person for you. They will be there, they will look after you, and they will always be there regardless of what happens. They love you regardless. So what happens is you get treated like that as a child in a really lovely way. You then grow up just learning without even realizing it. Yeah, yeah, this is how relationships are. The person that I'm with will love me. So you've learned that that person will be there for you consistently, regardless of what happens. And you then take that into your adult romantic relationships. You would be classified as securely attached. That's the optimal type of attachment if you were going to pick one.
1: And how does that manifest in relationships? Is it that you are used to having the long chat about feelings? (laughs) Yeah, it's you're used
0: to and you're comfortable being vulnerable. You trust that when someone loves you, they will be there for you. You trust that they will show up for you and you feel secure and stable in that relationship. I suppose the other way to look at it is if you flip it, you if you have one of the insecure types, which I'll go into detail in just a second, you might not trust that that person is going to be there for you. If you were raised with a caregiver who didn't always look after you, didn't tend to your needs, didn't give you attention, didn't feed you properly, didn't change a nappy, didn't cuddle you. In your brain somewhere, you have this idea of, well, that person's supposed to love me, but they're not really looking after me. Mm. So therefore, that's in you. So when you then come to later relationships, that person might be genuinely the love of your life. You might be the love of their life, but you have in your head, yeah, but that doesn't mean you're going to look after me because my first caregiver didn't. And they're supposed to. They are the one person on this planet that's supposed to love me unconditionally. If that person doesn't, that's in you. And you take that forward into your future relationships.
1: So essentially, attachment is trust. Yes, that's a really nice way of putting it. It's a massive part of it. Trust. Yeah. So the people that are securely attached have learned that it's okay to trust. Mm -hmm. It's Okay. okay to trust. Yeah. An insecure attachment is... that that bond of trust with your first relationship has been damaged in some way with your primary caregiver. So therefore it splinters off into maladaptive behavior.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And within that insecure attachment type, there are two key types of insecure attachment. So you've got insecure avoidant and insecure anxious. And each of those presents themselves in a slightly different way. Insecure avoidant, is as you might imagine, avoiding any type of emotional intimacy, finding it really uncomfortable, not enjoying perhaps big close conversations, being really quite detached. I think Roshin, we've chatted about this before when you described it as being like an island. You know, like, fine, I'll do it all myself. I don't need nobody. I will do it myself. So it's really avoiding that that emotional intimacy. And then when you have insecure anxious, which is also known as insecure resistant, just for anyone listening, this is a really funny one because it's kind of like you really want the love and the security and the emotional closeness, but then you get really, really anxious when it comes to you. So when you observe this in kind of two and three-year-olds, because you can see it in children this young, when you see it in two and three-year-olds, they do, um, there's an experiment called the strange situation. It's like the classic experiment in this area. And without going into the detail, there's a, a baby and they're left in the room on their own for a little bit. They're being watched. There's loads of toys. What the psychologists look at is when the mum comes back into the room, what does the baby do? If the child is insecure, um, anxious or insecure, resistant, they will kind of want to be picked up. But also when you pick them up, they wiggle to be put down at the same time. And it's a little bit as though they're going, I really, really want your love. And I really, really want to cuddle off you, but I do not trust that you are going to give me what I need. So I'm also trying to protect myself at the same time. So you get this baby that both seeks and rejects love and care at the same time. And it's like, they just don't really know what to do with themselves. It's like, I want this, but I I don't trust you enough to have it. And I'm just really confused. So. You have secure attachment, and then you have insecure avoiding and insecure anxious slash resistant, and they just show themselves in slightly different ways. But the optimal is secure.
1: I'm assuming that the secure attachment, the baby in that scenario, is picked up, is cuddled, and then is popped back down and is fine. Exactly. And that baby is also really happy to go off and play
0: as long as they know that the mum's there. So, in the room with the toys, the secure baby will go off, have a wonder. They might look back over the shoulder and be like, yeah, yeah, they're still there. Cool, great. I'm going to go and play with that car. Insecure avoidant is like, I'm going to go find the toy at the furthest end of the room (laughs) because I'm just going to stay well clear of you. Now, interestingly, insecure, kind of anxious, they tend not to leave the caregiver's side because ultimately it's like they don't trust that if they leave the caregiver, the caregiver is still going to be there. So they are actually, they can be super clingy. So a healthy way of behaving is actually comfortable to go off and explore because you trust that your caregiver will be there. You trust that they're going to be there when you look back over the shoulder. But the insecure, anxious person, and this is how it shows up in relationships, these are the people that tend to be perhaps overly clingy needing a lot of reassurance, needing a lot of contact time with their partner. So as an adult, that's how insecure, anxious would show itself, needing that constant reassurance. And yet it can be described as clingy. Sorry to interrupt, but do you know that I offer a two-week free trial on all my training plans? This means you have access to my fertility-focused training plans, meal plans and accountability calls for the duration of your trial. For more information and to sign up to start your free trial, get in touch at info
1: at fitnessfertility.com. And now back to the show. This person I know quite well, and I would say just on that description, she's insecure, anxious, because in her relationships, she is a texter, like a constant texter with her partner. It's like bing, 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 bing. bing." And, and, And I'm always like, what are you guys talking with have been together a very, very long time, you know, 20 years, but still that conversation, that flow of conversation must be maintained every 15, 20 minutes where, you know, I love Phil and all, you know, really fond of him, but I can go, you know, really (laughs) days.
0: I mean, Phil can be quite quiet, so I can see that actually happening.
1: No, but (laughs) I think if I started texting at that rate, he would think that was having some kind of, Emergency. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Mm -hmm. but the idea of constantly in communication and that maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm armchairing, you know, this a little bit, but that's kind of struck me where maybe the people that never text are the ones that are avoided, especially I have a boyfriend. I don't know where he is. I could care less.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They're like, I know that technically I have a boyfriend, but I'm just really going to protect myself in case this all goes to crap. So I'm not going to message it. I'm not going to get too close because that way, if it does go to crap, yeah, I won't be that affected by it anyway.
1: You said there was a fourth, a recent fourth. Which one's that? Perhaps not that recent, but yeah. So these first three
0: categories were developed and then they developed a fourth category and in true psychology style um this was a woman called Mary Ainsworth and John Bowlby who worked together and they just kind of said we think there's a fourth group of kids who don't really fall into any of these three so we're just going to create a fourth and this is called disinhibited attachment and this is where they show a kind of mixture of of all the symptoms but what's interesting in this one is Children with this particular attachment type, and it it may go into adulthood as well, they have this trait of being overly familiar with adults. It's really interesting. So strangers that they've never met before, people that they don't know at all, overly friendly, overly tactile. If you think about that with children in the wrong hands, that can actually be quite dangerous. They might come across as super cheery and super positive and super social, but actually After about seven months of age, children have stranger anxiety. They're supposed to be nervous of strangers because they've learned, ah, you're my caregiver, you're my human. They're not, so I don't want to go anywhere near them. Really, children shouldn't be all over a stranger because there should be somewhere in them that stranger anxiety. If they are insecurely attached because their caregiver hasn't looked after them, they've never learned, my caregiver looks after me, so I don't go with strangers. So they don't really care, so they're all over strangers. So these are the different attachment types that you develop as a child, but stay with you in adulthood. And these can then have an effect on your adult relationships. And
1: with fertility, this can be massive. So just on the stranger thing, I noticed that with my girls, you get the, what we call making strange. I know it's quite an Irish term. They kind of get over that hump a little bit when they are going to school and stuff like that, because they, they they really are like confronted with a lot of strangers. You know, you've got their first primary school teacher, you go, all their little <laughs> friends are strangers all the all their parents are strangers, so for this disinhibited group, I recognize what you're saying that at seven months they shouldn't be doing this. There should be very clear delineation between who is the parent and who is not. How does that manifest though, when I suppose they're all thrown into a scary world outside the home? You still see differences. In how
0: they treat strangers to how they treat their parents. Even though, yes, it's their primary school teacher, they know that I am in primary school. This is my primary school teacher. But they won't necessarily be as emotionally vulnerable with their primary school teacher as they will be at home.
1: I see. We have these four different attachment styles, and we're just like humans trying to make our way in the world. And we progress and we get out of school and we form new attachments with friends and partners. And then suddenly we have a fertility problem, which is a huge stressor in any relationship. So how does attachment style and infertility, how does that manifest? Depending on your attachment type,
0: this will affect how you relate to your significant other. We've talked about this before, but infertility requires so much intimacy. I'm not talking about physical intimacy when you go and visit Wanda. We know that that is physical intimacy. The emotional intimacy that comes with infertility is immense. You have to talk about everything. You have to be vulnerable. If you have an attachment style, insecure avoidant, for example, where you are pretty much required to be vulnerable in order to go through your own kind of TTC journey, This might be incredibly difficult for someone that has an avoidant attachment type because they've learned, hell no, I'm not being vulnerable with anyone. I'm not talking about my emotions. It's much safer not to. Thank you very much. Trying to get through something like IVF without talking about your emotions is basically impossible. So what will happen to people who have this kind of avoidant type is that they might end up having to talk about emotions, which they are immensely uncomfortable doing. Because they don't feel safe, which then results in basically extra stress. Because of all all of a sudden they've been thrown into the situation where they can't really avoid it. So what might happen in the long run is that they end up feeling more stressed than some other people because for one of the first times ever they're having to deal with emotions and they're not used to it and they find it very, very difficult. So this can then pile on top of the existing levels of stress that they already have. So it can be massive.
1: Also, with people that have avoidant style of attachment, they're kind of used to being able to do stuff on their own. And then suddenly everyone wants to sit around and discuss things and you're like, oh, hell no.
0: (laughs) Absolutely not. No, thank you very much. It's like you're getting squeezed and and you, you can't avoid it. You get to a point where you have to talk about it. But this person is not equipped to talk about that level of intimacy, to talk about that level of emotions. And so in the
1: end, it just becomes so incredibly stressful. So how would someone with anxious attachment fare with the fertility diagnosis? There is really recent research. And
0: what the research has shown is that people with this anxious attachment type already have lower levels, lower kind of quality of life levels after the infertility diagnosis, because people with the insecure anxious type, they already... Have things like dysfunctional body imaging attitudes, they already view their body in a negative way. It's how they already are. And what's interesting about fertility is the woman's body becomes the spotlight when it comes to fertility. It becomes poked, it becomes prodded. We know that infertility affects men and women, but particularly if it's female female-sided infertility, the woman's body becomes the focus of everything, and you've already got a woman that's insecure, anxious which means they're already nervous or are insecure about certain things, including their body type. So what might then happen is, if you have a woman that's already insecure, anxious, because they're already a little bit down on themselves anyway, they are, according to the research, less likely to invest in their own body in the first place. According to the research, these people are less likely to try and eat well because they're not going to invest in their body in the first place they're less likely to be active because they're not going to invest in their body in the first place. And so what's interesting is, because their body is perhaps not in its best health, it could then have an effect on the fertility process. Because like we've talked about before, you want your body to be as fit and as healthy as possible before you even start IVF. But because insecure, anxious people are already down on themselves, they're not willing to invest in the first place. So ultimately, it may have an effect on your actual
1: outcomes overall. It's nearly like a fait accompli, isn't it, for those mm-hmm. people? Mm-hmm. And how does it manifest with the, the newly formed <laughs>
0: disinhibited group to be honest I couldn't find as much research on this one and I, and I always want to be honest when we're chatting but I imagine because that group of people basically had traits of all of them I imagine you'd see a lot more variability and how that one manifests itself it might be for example that they overly share this is just me going on what I know But it might be that they overly share. Maybe they chat to the person at the bus stop about their fertility and
1: this kind of oversharing. But I would love to see some more research on that. I think it must be very difficult if you're in a relationship, those attachment styles, and then realizing, oh God, we've actually got a problem. We need to force this person across the line. They need to talk to someone. They need to take action. They need to be proactive. They need to be healthy. That has to be incredibly tough.
0: Do you know what, Roshan? This is why I love doing the podcast with you, because you come up with all these really interesting ideas and thoughts. You're absolutely right, because it's not just your attachment type. It's the attachment type of your partner. And actually, that kind of takes us back to what we were talking about at the beginning. It's you and your partner are in this together, if, if you have a partner. And infertility brings it all up infertility will bring up everything because it's the emotional vulnerability. It's the intimacy. It's the communication. Communication is massive. So like you've just said, if you have someone that has an insecure avoidant attachment style, they're not going to want to communicate with you about their emotions. So I think you're so right on this going through infertility Someone who has an insecure attachment style can absolutely pose its own problems. And again, this is why I love therapy because you can have couples therapy, you can have individual therapy. And this is why a lot of people going through fertility end up in therapy. It's not a physical thing. Infertility is such an emotional roller coaster, it's just packed full of things
1: that come up along the way. Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask you next. It's great that we know about all these attachment styles, we now understand why we have them. We may all be a little bit clear about why our partners and ourselves behave in certain ways. You think, oh, God, that that sounds like (laughs) me. But it's only valuable if you can do something about it. I'm assuming going to therapy is the only thing that you can do about it. Before you even get to therapy, if this episode does anything today, I would say please try and
0: find out what your attachment type is. There are loads of online tests you can do now. I would say with the caveat of... If you're not being professionally assessed, then please do be aware of that. But you can definitely start to look into it. If you just put into your search engine attachment type test, there are so many out there. So the first thing is, please just be aware of the type of attachment you have and also your partner. If you can get them both to do it, which if your partner is avoidant, It shouldn't be funny, but it's a little bit funny because they're not going to want to do that. Try and find out what attachment type you and your partner have. If you are both securely attached, it doesn't mean it's going to be plain sailing and easy, but you're probably coming from a more solid base. If you then have any combo of factors, therapy is a big one. And to be honest, even if you are both securely attached, therapy is probably a great idea anyway if you have that available to you, just because infertility is hard. So find out what attachment types you are and then act on as required. But you can't deal with something if you don't know it's there.
1: Go and seek some therapy. You're going to need that to get through the fertility process anyway. You might learn something about yourself. And your mother,
0: <laughs> I was going to say. And please go easy on your own parents and your parent-in-laws. Chances are they were doing the best. They give everyone
1: a little bit of grace.
0: And we just learn. You know, we learn and we move on. We do. And we go from there.
1: And talking about giving people a little bit of grace, what will we be speaking about next week? Well, Roisin, next week we are on holiday.
0: So... This summer is here. Roshan and I are going to be on holiday for a couple of weeks. We are really excited to reshare with you some of our most popular episodes. We are digging into the archives because we have some fantastic episodes for you. And for any of our new listeners, of which there have been many, so you're very welcome here, you may not have got round to these ones yet. So stay tuned for some of our favourite episodes coming up next week.
1: Next Friday. You will be back in the fantastic company of Julia Young, who is a nutritionist extraordinaire. And you will be hearing one of our quite early, early shows. So please bear with us if the sound is a bit real. Julia is absolutely (laughs) fantastic. And we will be back with you 1st September with some new stuff.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. Remember to subscribe to get a shiny new episode each week and please rate, comment and really importantly share with your friends, especially our trying to conceive sisters. You never know who's struggling and they may need that little bit of
1: extra help. This may come as a surprise, but we are not doctors. We strongly recommend that you consult with your doctor before beginning any exercise or nutrition program. Get everything checked out first. Your safety is our priority. This has been a Worth a Listen production.